I want to ask you to take your Bibles as we're in the last message in the Kingdom Praying series. And I want us to talk about the power of united prayer in Matthew 18, the power of united prayer. What Jesus says here is vitally important, and it is extremely important that we understand these verses in the context in which they were spoken, because if we do, as we have learned in our Pray Like This series in Bible study, we will holy the name of God and hallow the name of God and respect and fear the name of God if we understand how Jesus is telling us to pray in this context. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Jesus begins these three verses by saying, truly I say to you, you can take this to the bank. This is a trustworthy statement. This is an undeniable truth. And what you get here is you get insight into believing prayer from the greatest authority on prayer that ever walked this planet, Jesus Christ. But he gives it in a context that we need to understand before we just randomly claim these verses. He's telling us how to pray with heavenly authority, how to grab hold of the authority of heaven so that in our praying, we are in agreement with God and with what he desires in heaven. He is not saying in these verses, as is often misinterpreted, that if we agree, we can bend God to do what we want him to do. What he is saying is, when my people bend their wills to my will, then I will act from heaven to do that which you're asking for. And so the first thing that he talks about is the law of binding and loosing. And Jesus is speaking to the church, to his disciples, but now to us. And the you there is plural. He's talking to the body. He's not just talking to a person. He's talking to the corporate church gathered together and it is in the context, if you look at the verses before and you look at the verses after, it's in the context of a brother or a sister in Christ that is going through church discipline. In other words, the context of this prayer is how do we pray when a member of our church family is openly, willingly, and unrepentantly living in sin. Now that's key. Because if a person is unfaithful to God or unfaithful to their wife or unfaithful to their husband or unfaithful in their responsibilities as a family or is involved in things that bring shame to the name of Jesus Christ, that's how God's telling us to pray. This is how you pray for them. You don't ignore them. You don't just say, well, I'm glad they're, they're not here. I'm glad they don't come. Some of, some of you may be Bible study teachers, and quite honestly, you're glad some people don't come because you don't want to do what God says. You don't want to go talk to them 
And they're in your class, and your class knows them, and they know your class. But you just want to ignore them. That's not what Jesus says to do here. Jesus says when, the, when sin is going on in the life of a church, the church binds and looses according to what God has said. So the context is of church discipline and conflicts. And you see in, in the notes the doctrinal error, a believer living in sin, a troublemaker, or immorality. So how, how do I deal with a believer who's living in sin? Well, I pray. First and foremost, I pray. John MacArthur says, Jesus was not speaking about petitioning God for special blessings or privileges. Or even less was he teaching that the church or any of its leaders has power to absolve sin of its members. Just stop right there. That means that no priest can absolve your sins. No preacher can absolve your sins. Only God can forgive your sins. So don't think that if I go and get behind a wall and pray to, to tell a guy what I did and he tells me to say three Hail Marys that, that that gets me off the hook. That's not what God said. That's a man-made system. So look at what he says. He was declaring that the church has a divine mandate to discipline its members when they refuse to repent. So these verses are not a magic wand or a magic formula that brings all kind of spells or, or magic or unbelievable things that begin to happen. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. This is not Harry Potter and a wand. This is not wave it and then all of a sudden God does whatever we say. Prayer is not holding God hostage to a text taken out of context. So Jesus isn't telling us to pray here so we can escape from our responsibilities. He's telling us not to pray here so we can have whatever we want. He's telling us how to pray here so that the body of Christ is a witness to the world of the power of God in the midst of his people. That's what he's telling us. So Jesus is telling us that believers are supernaturally connected to God and that heaven is waiting on earth to walk in prayerful obedience. So we are right with God, we're right with the word, and then he contrasts heaven and earth. Well, we know that there's a difference between heaven and earth. Earth is a place of the five senses. It's we're fallen. We long for a new heaven and a new earth. We long for a new Jerusalem, but right now this world groans. We live in a fallen world. Sin rules and reigns in this world. And Christ has come to save this world from sin and from judgment and from hell. We live in an earth. People are going to fall. People are going to blow it. People are going to make mistakes. But we don't just shrug our shoulders and say, huh, that's bad that that happened. So we call on heaven, the eternally present heaven. Now, here's what you and I need to understand. Jesus informs us that the door between these two worlds is wide open. That there is a door open, the door of prayer is open between heaven and earth. That when we get on the same page with God, the key is prayer. That we bring heaven down to earth. We've been studying this Lord's Prayer in Bible study. 
that your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what does the kingdom of God look like? It certainly doesn't have traitors in it. And it certainly doesn't have people that are disloyal to the kingdom. And so how do we bring all of this to pass? Jesus ties it all together, and there is a sense in which God waits for his people to pray before he acts. You see it in the Bible. You see it with Moses. You see it with Daniel praying for the deliverance of the people of God. You see it with Joshua with the preparation of their hearts. There's a preparation of heart that has to come that God ignites things in this world based on prayer. You see it in the stories of revival and awakening. God sets his people to do two things every time there's been a revival. There's been a commitment, a renewed commitment to praying and pounding heaven for revival. And there's been a renewed commitment to the word of God. God has chosen, if you will, to limit himself to his people believing what he says he will do. Now, this principle runs all throughout the earth. It runs with whoever the president of the United States is. Doesn't matter who it is, Republican or Democrat, the president has certain things that only the president can do. For instance, sign treaties. For instance, declare war. Only the president, no, no member of Congress, no member of the Senate can sign a treaty or declare war. That is given to the office of the president. There are things that are given by God that he has limited himself and said, when you decide to start praying, I'll decide to start working. Now, we can whine and moan about prodigals and about our husbands or our wives, everything else. But the problem is we can talk about it a lot more than we pray about it. We can talk to people about what's going on that we wish God would do something about and never talk to God, never be in agreement with God. Matthew 18 says that God has granted the powers of binding and loosing to those who are responding biblically to what's going on around them. So the Greek here is a future perfect passive, which means this is the way it should read. Will have been bound and will have been loosed. So what God has done is he has said when the church is conformed into the image that God wants it to be, when its desire is in line with the desire of God, when its will is in line with the will of God, when its hope is in line with the hope of God, when its praying is in line with the word of God and the precepts of God, God says, watch me, I'll step in. Watch me, I'll do that. Romans 6, 14 says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, under grace doesn't mean we get to act any way we want to. But we're not under law, so, but we're under grace. And grace should mean we don't want to continue to live in sin. Not that we want God to give us a pass so we can continue to live in sin. God, by the Holy Spirit, has given us the power to deal with situations that are in conflict or opposition to the will of God. And that is through prayer. How many, how many of you have ever 
been a part of a church that fought and fussed and ran off preachers all the time. How many of you have ever been a part of a church like that? Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I would bet the farm that church was not a praying church. You show me a church that fusses and fights and argues and backstabs, and I'll show you a church where prayer is nothing more than the offering and the benediction, but it is not a focal point of the life of the church. Because a praying church cannot ignore what God says we need to pay attention to. A praying church cannot live in, in that kind of environment. 2 Corinthians 10, 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And we are destroying speculations. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, I don't have time to give into that, but if you just look at verse 5, anything that happens in the life of a believer or in the life of a church that is raised up against the knowledge of God, what God has said, or raised up against taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ should be turned into a prayer meeting. We need to get serious about talking to God about what's disrupting his body, his family. Now listen, you would not let a child molester come to your house and babysit your child. Would you? If you would, we have a counseling center you need to go to, seriously. You wouldn't let that happen. But we will let sin go unnoticed and undealt with because we just don't want to say anything. We just don't want to say anything. And what we're doing is condemning that person to judgment because we've not brought them to understand the need for repentance. Because we've ignored sin, we don't give the opportunity for repentance to get working in the life of that person. God has granted us the power in prayer to appropriate the resources of heaven. So this just doesn't apply to me. It applies to all of us. It applies to how we pray for one another. When's the last time in your Bible study class you got on your knees and prayed for the people that hadn't been there in forever? Something is keeping them away. It could be you. It could be something that happened in the class. It could be something that's going on in their life. But until you pray and act, faith without works is dead, they'll just stay away. But Paul said, it's my desire to present every person complete in Christ, not just the people who attend, but all to be complete in Christ. We intercede for them. We lay hold of heaven. We boldly approach the throne of grace. We exercise God's authority given to us in the realm of prayer. James 5, 16, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now that's all the first point. Second point is the law of unity. And most people live defeated lives because they're not in unity. Uh, if you've been in, in Bible study, by the way, I keep hitting Bible study because some of you are not there, but uh, if you've been in Bible study, you heard what J.D. Greer talked about in one of those sessions 
where he talked about, you know, my wife and I have been married for 15 good years and two not so good. And one of the things he talked about on that video was where he said, you know, until you quit saying the problem is your wife and you realize you're the sinner, your marriage is not going to be fixed. You see, it's easy for us to pray and say, Lord, they're my problem. When we, we may be the problem with the spirit of unity in the church flowing as it should. This is a core value of prayer. If two agree on earth about anything, specifically here, if we're in agreement of a sin that needs to be confessed. All right, so this is, this is Q&A time. How many of you know a believer... You believe that they know Christ, that if they died today, they would go to heaven. How many of you know a believer that is out of fellowship, completely out of fellowship with God right now? How many of you know somebody? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands on the second one. How many of you have asked somebody to agree with you to pray that they would come to repentance? Or do you just talk about them? Or do you just ignore them? Or do you hope you don't see them in the grocery store? You see, if we're going to be the church that prays, we have to be a people that say, there's a brother that is headed toward a pig pen. There's a sister that is in the pig pen. And we must agree with God that that is not his will for them and call them before the Lord. The Jews had a saying that when two sit and are occupied with the study of the law, the glory of God is among them. The Jews believed and we believe that there is a power in united voices. Deuteronomy 32, 30, how could one chase a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? The, the math of heaven is crazy. It, it, it's not logical. It doesn't work that one shall chase a thousand and two will make 10,000 run. It doesn't make sense in the math of heaven to our logical fallen minds that we can agree in prayer and God can touch somebody anywhere, in any place, at any time and bring them back into the fold. You can't read Acts without seeing the power of a praying church and the resulting life change that happens in that church. There are at least eight words in the Greek New Testament that are translated in English, agree. This particular word, agree, literally means to stand together. To stand together or to stand in harmony. Now here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that I want God to do something and it may or may not be according to God's will. It may or may not be in the will of the Holy Spirit, who is also praying at this time, it may or may not be in the will of Jesus who is praying for me at this time, but I go and I get somebody and say, hey, I just want you to agree with me, and let's just agree that God's going to do this. Anytime anybody asks you to do that, ask them the scripture and verse. Ask them if there's agreement. See if there's agreement with you and what they're asking you to pray for. I, I've had people come up to me and, and say, I, I believe if you'd pray, I could win the lottery. Do I look stupid? 
unless you're going to give it all to the church, and then I'll pray for you. <laughs> no. It's not that I get somebody to agree with me, and so, God, look, here we are in agreement. Listen, we could all be in agreement, but we're, if we're not in agreement with the Lord, he's not going to open up heaven. We have to be in agreement with him. The word agree means to stand together or to harmonize. It is a picture of musical instruments tuned to the same note, playing in the same key. Now, we sang this morning, and, and I, I, I love our singing. Can you imagine if everybody on this platform decided to play in whatever key they wanted to play in? And all the singers, the choir just, the choir just, in walking in, they just said, you know, I'm just, I don't care what key this song is in, I'm just going to sing it the way I want to sing it. I want to do whatever I want to do. That wouldn't sound too good. But when it's in harmony, when there's agreement, you see, when a person is conducting musically, they are demanding of everyone that they are conducting to be in harmony with them, with the notes, with the key, with the rhythm. And Jesus is saying, when you harmonize with heaven and you're on the same page, in the same measure, in the same note, and in the same key with heaven, you better watch it because I'm going to let something loose or I'm going to bind something up. I'm going to do something that can't be explained. On earth as it is in heaven, what are we agreeing with? We're agreeing with the scriptures, we're agreeing with the spirit, and we are agreeing with the Son. Here's what we're looking for. We're looking for God's amen on the doxology. God, so be it that when we pray, we know we have prayed according to the will of God, according to the word of God, and we get the amen of God on what we pray for. Verse 24, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Heaven and earth are on the same page. Now, I love this quote that I found while I was studying. Our prayers can be pictured as the act of God, the Son, praying to God the Father by the power of God the Spirit in the prayer room of the believer's heart. I'll just look at that again. Our prayers, my prayers, your prayers, our prayers as a church can be pictured as the act of God the Son praying to God the Father by the power of God the Spirit in the prayer room of my heart and your heart. So there's the law of lordship. If I'm praying that way, then I'm under the lordship of Christ. Ephesians 1.21 says, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That word all is a pretty big word in just those few verses. It's the alls of people that understand our Father. Not my Father, but our Father. 
This is corporately. How we pray, how we intercede, how we intervene on behalf of other people. That Jesus is Lord of his church, and when he is Lord of his church, we are in line with him in what we do and how we think and how we pray. Where two or three are gathered in his name, we have power. Now here's a thought. There is a sense, there is a sense that we do not fully know all that Christ is and all that Christ can do apart from being a part of the church. Because God doesn't reveal everything he wants to reveal to a church just to you. That's why you need to have fellowship with the people around you. and You need to build relationships with people and not just be an attender, but be a faithful member of a church because there are things that you learn about Christ in the fellowship of other believers that you will never learn alone. Jesus says in John 14, I am not going to leave you as helpless orphans. And if all we do is come an hour every few weeks and check the box, we are acting and our prayer lives are as if we are helpless orphans and we go to God only in crisis but never in continuation. God wants us to be a family. You ever had family meeting? You ever had a come to Jesus family meeting? This is the way we're going to do it, and this is what we're going to do. When you have a family meeting, you get everybody there that you can get there. When the church gathers, it's a family meeting. And when there's sin, and when there's brokenness, and when there's unrepentance, it's while we rejoice and praise God for what He is doing in our lives, it should break our hearts for what He's not doing in some other people's lives, either because of prayerlessness or because we're trying to ask God to give us a pass on this one because it's too hard. Some of us are too proud to say we are in need of the body praying for our marriage, for our children, for the prodigal, for what's happened in my life because of disobedience. We're too proud to ask the body to agree, God, would you now do in this person's life what you had in mind in heaven when you created him? Would you do on earth now in that life what you have always wanted to do? Would you open up the floodgates of heaven? Would you turn the Holy Spirit loose on them? Would you remind them of some verse that they've heard? Would you give them an encounter with the living God? Would you let them be sleepless until they know that you are God. Where's that prayer meeting? Where's that burden? Well, we like to, whoo, God's going God's gonna to loose and he's going to bind. He will not do that without callous knees and bowed hearts. Ephesians 3.18, it 
that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints. That's not just by yourself, with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. All the saints. Now, the world says there's strength in numbers. Jesus says there's strength in my name. The world says force can make anything happen. Jesus says by faith you can move mountains. The world says just try harder. Jesus says abandon yourself to trust me. By the way, that's what prayer is. Prayer is an abandoning yourself to trust God because you've already realized you can't fix it or change it. You see, the power of the church is the Lord himself. In every movement of God in an individual's life, in a corporate life, in a revival setting, is started in prayer, but it is also sustained in prayer. Now, now there's one, one last word here. Again, the context. So the context is you got a brother that's sinned, you go to them privately, you go to them with a witness, and then you bring them ultimately before the body, and then they're treated like a Gentile, which means if they won't repent, you turn them over for the consequences of their sin. And so he says, truly, truly, I say to you, and then he tells them how to pray. And then right after he says that, Peter is thinking, hmm, this person sinned. And we're going, we're going to deal with it. And you said to bind and loose. Now, how many times do we have to forgive them, Lord? Because, you know, that's my third time they've messed up. How many times do we have to forgive them? You see, the key to binding and loosing is having the attitude towards sin that God has. He hates it, but he forgives it. He hates what sin does to us, but he forgives the sin that we commit when we cry to him and repent. So I'm going to ask you today, is there something that you need to get before God about? Is there a getting in alignment, a getting on heaven's math and, and lining yourself up with the scripture, with the spirit, with the son and being in agreement with him about what you're praying about. You see, often our prayers for people that are out of fellowship with God is we just don't want to look bad. That's not for the glory of God. Is there something you need to be in agreement on in prayer today? But here's the second thing. In just a moment, we're going to give an invitation. And I'm going to invite you, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, to come do that today. I'm going to invite you, if you've happened to wander into this place today and you know in your heart you're out of fellowship with the Lord and this is an altar where you can repent. This is a place where you can come and find forgiveness. As uh, Bob Pittman says, the altar is God's office. He's always open. This is a place where you can come and find cleansing and forgiveness as you bow and repent before God. But some of you here today need to trust Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. I would be foolish to think that in a room this size that there's somebody here that doesn't know Christ. Now, you may be a church member. 
You may have joined the church. You may have been baptized. I mean, every fish in the Flint River knows your name. You've been baptized so many times, but that doesn't get you saved. Baptism doesn't save you. Doing the ordinances doesn't save you. Joining a church doesn't save you. Your grandfather being in ministry doesn't save you. Having an uncle that's a preacher doesn't save you. What saves you is repenting of sin and coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Do you realize what has happened in the last week and a half that will never happen again in your lifetime? The gospel has been shared on every major secular news station in the world. The Billy Graham funeral almost broke the World Wide Web. It mean, it, everything was buffering because hundreds of millions of people were watching a funeral where there was a clear presentation of the gospel. It was an undeniable presentation that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but by him. And if you heard Billy Graham preach, you will know that he did over 400 crusades. He did almost 3,000 sermons. And as a friend of mine was in the office one day, and I was in the same office a few weeks later, looking at the manuscripts of Billy Graham's sermons, he said, it's amazing, 2,748 different messages. The curator of the library said, no, one message, 2,748 different ways to say. Jesus loves you and died for your sin and that you can have life in Christ if you give your heart to Jesus. There's just one message. So I want to ask us to stand and I'll ask you to sing with Mark this morning a very familiar song. And as you're singing, I want to ask you if you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior to step out and to come right now and to give your heart to Jesus. As we sing together, you step out and you come.